1: Hi from Buffalo. Larkinville, a cluster of businesses and restaurants on the southeast end of downtown Buffalo, is especially hopping in the warmer weather. Catch a live concert every Wednesday at Live at Larkin, check out Food Truck Tuesdays, or attend the Larkinville Market in Larkin Square on Thursdays with live music, jewelry and art vendors, and libations. I'm Peter Sabota. Becoming financially self-sustainable, is the need and basis of becoming a respectable human being. So states our guest, Dr. Meeta Samant, as she discusses the history and implementation of Annapurna Pariwal, a group of five developmental organizations working in India since 1993 and serving 1,000 slum pockets there. Its goal is to empower poor women and their families in terms of their finances, their education, and their health. Following in the footsteps of her father, our guest leads the organizations that promote microfinance, microinsurance, daycare, and research and training to provide support for options and opportunities to enrich the lives of the poor. Dr. Samant discusses the role of social entrepreneurs and the inherent trauma and human rights issues that are addressed by this movement. Practically, Dr. Samant describes how she optimizes social worker skill sets in service to the mission, and how she overcame the overt and institutional resistance and obstacles to microfinance efforts to empower the poor. Maida Samant, PhD, is Chairperson and Managing Director of Annapurna Pariwar and a distinguished social activist in the area of financial inclusion. Our guest was interviewed in April of 2018 by our own Dr. Gokul Mandiam, Clinical Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work.
2: Hello, my yeah. name is Gokul Mandiam, and I will be interviewing Dr. Maeda Samanth today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Samanth. My pleasure. Thank you. My first question to you would be, could you tell us briefly about your background and what led you to start Annapurna Parivar? And also uh, for the benefit of the audience, if you could translate the term Annapurna Parivar, that would be very helpful.
3: Professor Gokul, let me explain that Annapurna means goddess of food. Parivar means a big family. So you can say that at Annapurna Parivar, we are a big family where we serve for everybody's need. No family member can stay empty stomach here. Regarding my background, I started A because of my three B's. A meaning Annapurna Parivar and the three B's are my background, the way I was brought up and my beliefs i was born into a family of social workers and social activists social service was most common in my surrounding because of the marxist background of my parents i started to believe that the problems of society especially like poverty discrimination deprivations unequal opportunities are man made so i thought of correcting those my father who was a well known bank employees leader and who was a strong supporter of nationalization of banks because he thought that that's the way they help the poor. And my mother was a women women's rights activist. So I combined women and banking as this was the easiest combination to do for me. With my exposure to the poor women's issues and how the banking industry could help poor masses, especially the poor women, who owned nothing, no asset in their name, etc. Thankfully, my life partner whom I met 40 years ago in the student's movement and married later on, he knows me so well that he was quite prepared for supporting me because I think he knew he, had, he hardly had any choice. So I started giving small credit and started gathering the small savings of nine vegetable vendors 25 years ago leaving my bank job the goal was to free them from the clutches of private money lenders the initial goal then eventually we started micro insurance the health insurance life family insurance 15 years later then daycare centers for the children educational sponsorships so on and so forth making annapurna Parivar a group of five independent organizations working together for the goal of comprehensive development of the poor women and their families, using all the—I mean—all the services, microcredit, microinsurance, child care, etc.
2: Moving on to the next question, given the contextual background of various models of microfinance, both for-profit and non-profit targeting different population groups, how did your organization get involved with this particular approach of microfinance and why? In other words, could you really explain how the program works?
3: Let me first say a few things about microfinance. What is microfinance? We give small doses of credit to the poor who do not get loans from the formal financial institutions. Because they can't offer guarantee, collateral security, which is very much required for the banks. So the microfinance has evolved. The MFIs have evolved in the last 25 years because of this need or requirement, you can say. In India, there was always a history of poor women who couldn't get bank loans and who formed their own groups of uh, 10, 20 women to pull together small savings and give small loans to the group members, charging an interest acceptable to all the group members and sharing the interest earned by all the group members. This was happening since the 70s. This was very informal without any legal status. Then between the 80s and 90s, the banks started financing these self-help groups. But as you know, the banking industry by nature, they are very playing it very safe. So, the way they were financing the self-help groups probably did not satisfy the needs. And then, after 90s, the microfinance institutions have evolved. The Reserve Bank of India, intermittently is giving some guidelines how the microfinance field should work. But still, so far, it's not governing this field. The Reserve Bank recommended in, in 1990 that the trust charities cannot do micro credit the informal groups have to be formalized by not-for-profit companies non-bank finance corporations or cooperative so the charities or trusts could no longer do microfinance and then registration of a cooperative credit society was a lot of time consuming activity and that's how naturally many mfis got registered As non-bank finance corporations or not-for-profit companies but the percentage of non-bank finance corporations these are called NBFCs this was quite high as compared to the not-for-profit company then it was easier to have the capital infusion by foreign bodies NRIs etc and naturally the return on investment was specified by the investor or demanded hence what happened was After the 90s, once the NBFC started uh, operating in the field of microfinance. By the nature of it, they could not gather savings. By the nature of it, they were profit-making entities. The ROI was demanded by the investors. And that's how it happened. So the investors and the promoters gained. But the profits were not passed on to the poor women. I think in Annapurna, it's in the genes that we, you know, we, we connect more with the self-help group spirit, we, we are more naturally closer to the culture of mutually deciding things in a cooperative model, and we also had by 1993, we also had a registered cooperative credit society, charitable trust, and we also had a not-for-profit company. That was mainly because I, me being a banker, I was following RBI circulars, and so I knew what they were guiding. And then, you know, as naturally we were closer to the cooperative model, we chose to work under that model. So our microfinance activity, which started with only nine vegetable vendors in 93 and today 100,000 members in 2018, 9,000 rupees to 100 crores rupees portfolio. But still, we take all the decisions by vote of Hands, show of hands, profits are shared by all the members, staff and board members in equitable proportions. And I think this is the way we also generate the savings. We give good interest on the savings. Members are happy. The organization is sticking up to its social goals, objectives. I think it's very natural for us.
2: Would it be possible that you could briefly explain what the term self-help groups really mean?
3: Self-help group means group of women or men but more commonly women come together in a self-help group in india these are very simple poor women who don't own any asset can't offer any guarantee collateral security to the bank so what happens is they form these in uh, informal groups uh, like rokas i think in africa that's what they call there are many uh, different names in different cultures or different countries in india it is called self-help group wherein informally 10 or 15 or 20 women get together they pull their small savings they share the savings or they give the loans to one of the members or two of the members from the same group. They specify the interest rate and they also share whatever interest is earned on the loans given out of the savings put in by all the group members.
2: For the benefit of the audience, I'm going to expand the acronym so that NBFC is Non-Banking Financial Corporations, MFI is Microfinance Institutions, NRI is Non-Resident Indians, and RBI is Reserve Bank of India, and the term ROI means Return on Investment. Could you describe the micro-insurance program, the health insurance in particular, that's part of Annapurna Parivar's list of programs and how it has impacted the lives of your clients.
3: Yeah, sure. See, after implementing the microfinance program for 10 years, from 93 to 2003, already we had started feeling the need for the health insurance, the life insurance for the of the members and their families. Because you see, if somebody falls sick, at the home of a borrower who has been very regular in the repayment previously but due to the sickness or death in the family the borrower can't repay a particular installment or maybe two or three installments it sounded very cruel to us to you know ask for the repayment uh, come what may whatever happens in your family you have to repay to us that wasn't in our culture, so at annapurna we started exploring whatever was av- if there was anything available in the insurance market and sadly enough in 2001 no affordable insurance for the poor people was available in the commercial insurance market so we practically we had no choice but we had to design our own insurance so we designed our micro insurance health life and family Uh, like a cooperative or a mutual model where again we discussed what were the affordable premiums. We discussed whether our members, with all the members, with all the then members, we discussed what was the affordable premium for them, whether they wanted to cover themselves or their families also, what were the diseases, most common diseases faced by them, what were they scared of, so on and so forth. They always needed health advice and also money, which no insurance company was offering, of course. So this is how we designed our own health insurance, the premium, the diseases to be covered. Everything was designed by us. So the members own it up. They pay for the premium of their families. They bear all the costs, including the staff salaries. Also including the medical officers in Annapurna. They participate in the sanctioning of all the claims. So it's a mutual model, you see, where one contributes, takes care of health and each one gets money and advice in need. So we started our micro-insurance program with only 700 women initially as members. Today we have 23 million members. We have very... Less than 1% rejection ratio in all types of claims, very high client satisfaction, high renewal ratio, which no other microfinance institution is offering to their clients. What the other MFIs are doing, they are tying up with insurance, commercial insurance companies where rejections are high, premiums are increasing each year, members are not educated to take care of their health. And the ownership of, ownership of the community is totally missing. So this is the way the our insurance is different than the insurance of other MFIs. And I think our clients are happy with this model.
2: How do you see social work professionals playing an integral role in the microfinance arena?
3: I think, Professor Gokul, you know that I am a trained social worker and I have who has done a doctorate in social work but my background as a banker and training as a social worker that helped me so for me this evolution from a social worker to social entrepreneur it was perhaps easier or natural i think social entrepreneur falls somewhere between social worker and an entrepreneur we all know that trained social workers assist the client to overcome their problems but the costs of these services are not borne many times by the clients these costs are borne by the government or the society or it's some charity so social entrepreneur is a person who works with the client to design derive solutions where clients bear the costs because the solutions to these problems their problems i mean are designed to suit their needs And I think this is the major difference between the social worker and the social entrepreneur. And I think the microfinance field technique or tool which can be very easily used to help the people who are facing the problem of poverty. This helps them find solutions out of the poverty. Initially, we see that the very poor clients, they get collateral free loans Without any guarantee, they're very happy. Sometimes the first few loans are spent for consumption purpose. But eventually the client starts using the money for a business expansion, for creating assets and the family members of the clients join the business. So the whole family works out of the poverty, the clutches of poverty. And I think this is very wonderful to see it happen and help it happen.
2: Tell me more about how do you see a social work professional in dealing with those everyday matters within a nonprofit like that of yours, approving claims or training them on financial issues, etc.
3: In Annapurna, we hire more social workers than MBAs or any other graduate. I mean, out of all the 400 odd staff in Annapurna Parivar, all the five organizations we have more than 50 trained social workers working within the five organizations i think they have the they have acquired already they have acquired these skills of counseling of empathizing with the clients of seeing the needs of the clients and how to you know work out the solution with them having a dialogue with them so i think these are the skills that most trained social workers have already acquired And I feel that why these young people, they choose this social work training because they have an inclination to work for the society. And which for me is a, you know, the basis on which many other skills can be built. And so I very much love to, you know, build these skills of financial knowledge, of knowledge about insurance, of knowledge about handling the different data, excels and the other skills, you know, this can be acquired and taught. And I think we have trained this team to handle the data, explain the data to the clients so that the clients understand moving in a particular direction is helpful for them.
2: I wanted to ask about how do you see social work practice within an organization like Annapurna Parivar really embracing the trauma-informed and human rights perspective
3: Trauma and human rights violations frequently go hand in hand. We see it from the local levels to global levels. The poverty leads to trauma. We as social workers, we are committed to the promotion of social and economic justice, you see. And uh, poverty excludes people. Poverty does a lot of social injustice and also economic injustice to the people. So I think using the technique of microfinance, you know, to empower the poor women. So also, you know, handling the human rights issues, preventing them from, from further trauma, preventing the children, the poor children from traumatic experience of a poor childhood through our various other programs like daycare centers and educational sponsorship for the poor children. We also handle this because our, you see ours is not only a microfinance institution, but I will now split it a little bit the micro credit and savings program takes care of the social and economic justice in such a way that each one gets access to the credit each one can put in their savings and also take loans frequently not only once but by all doses of credit again and again so that they can you know work out of the poverty micro insurance takes care of, you know, their health problems, death, health uh, sicknesses and uh, deaths. These are the most traumatic experience as we see. And they get connected with the human rights issues when somebody, you know, who has money can afford a treatment and somebody who doesn't have money, who's poor, can't afford a treatment. So through micro insurance, we offer a solution where even the poor people who don't have so much of money, but they pull their funds together and they help each other. And it's a very common fact, which we are now through our data. Also, we can prove of microinsurance data of last 15 years that when 100 people put in their money into insurance, only two people have to be hospitalized. But then we help those two people from, you know, facing the most traumatic experiences of their life. We also give them the best medical services which can be affordable, particularly in those diseases or in case of death. So this is the second aspect of our services which uh, takes care of trauma and human rights issues. The third thing is daycare centers in the slums. In most slums, the poor parents, both of them have to work. So both of them are going out to work. And the very young children, even uh, below age of six years they stay at home alone sometimes they live they are left to the mercy of the neighbors or distant relatives and you see so many bad things happen with the young kids they learn all nasty habits this is a very adverse childhood experience but they get uh, this is the least of all that they get they learn wrong things and the worst things happen when they are sexually abused they get physically traumatized So to prevent them from all such experiences, our daycare centers are helpful. We give them a very safe daycare when uh, for eight or 10 hours of a day when their parents are away, their parents have to earn for the family and the child is very safe and not only safe, we give them very very nice experiences with having activities with their uh, singing and dancing and creative activities and the child you know, a very poor child whose parents couldn't have afforded a daycare center. Otherwise, they can afford our daycare centers, which are very cheap, like $10 a month. Within this cost, the child, you know, spends the whole day, 26 days a month. And the child, you know, evolves as a better human being, very much connected with the human rights and affordable daycare services and less and less traumatic experiences in the life of these children. Also, our educational sponsorship program, if a mother is single, we give this educational sponsorship to the child. And otherwise, if we wouldn't have been giving this, the child would have had to work in the childhood, earn for the family and for perhaps his own education, his or her own education, which is again traumatic as a child labor. He he or she has to undergo uh, different experiences which are not so good. So I think this is all, all the services which we offer at Annapurna Parivar are uh, taking care of human rights and human rights violation.
2: As part of Annapurna Parivar, you also have the research wing, which is Dadapura Research Institute. Could you talk a little bit about that and also let the audience know to what extent is research really impacting the way your programs function?
3: Dadapuro Research Center is the, I think, one of the last activities we started 10 years ago and uh, still it's very close to my heart because we started it in the name of my late father, who was a trade union leader and very well known uh, person in Indian trade union industry. We try to, you know, in this research center, we try to host uh, students from different uh, disciplines, mostly the social work students are here. Management students are here, social entrepreneurship students are here. Even we have students from IIMs, which are the, you know, one of the top most educational institutions in India. We try to, you know, facilitate good research, good empirical research based on the data that we have. We have a lot of data as you already know of all our borrowers because we have our own in-house software. So we have the data, right from the when the person becomes our borrower through all the life cycle the family members their age groups their health education family status the housing setup everything all the data we have and this data is explored plus you know direct on field interviews are taken to find out their you know experiences or the the way their life has changed using the different services like microfinance, microinsurance and daycare centers. Probably this year we will have a book on the educational sponsored students, quite a few of whom have become a success stories. Last year's book was based on the experiences of the poor after the demonetization in India, so on and so forth. So we are using a lot of in-house data plus interacting with the members. Different students of different uh, institutions are... Undertaking different projects based on the empirical data, we try to have some findings which again are used in our work, in our development of further projects because they are fact-based, they are based on empirical data and whatever are the outcomes or findings of the research, they are always useful to use again in the projects.
2: I do remember that you said when you started Annapurna Parivar with the vegetable vendors, it was small and that commercial banks asked you why you were doing that. And now that you are having banks approaching you to tap this segment, how you've come a long way today.
3: Exactly 25 years ago, while I was still in the bank, I I could see many vegetable vendors Borrowing from the private money lenders. My bank was just across the street, but the banking industry by nature itself was not inclined to give loans to the poor. So I used to ask my fellow bankers whether we could help these poor women from whom I used to buy my vegetables. And I could see them every day borrowing and repaying to the private money lenders. But my colleagues thought I was over idealistic and they sometimes made fun of me. But then my curiosity and also my inclination to the poor women always forced me to have a dialogue with those women ask them how why and how they were borrowing and then i understood that they were borrowing at very exorbitant rate, rates of interest they were also getting cheated when i looked through their small passbooks, i could understand that some of the installments were not written by the money lenders and as it is he was charging them very high so i I was trying to convince them to borrow from the bank. I asked them how much they were borrowing. So uh, they actually required only thousand rupees for a working capital to buy potatoes and onions or some vegetables to sell. And that was very, very low. Even in 1990s, it was very low, one thousand rupees as a loan. So I thought that banks could easily give them. But on one hand, these uh, vegetable vendors were scared of the banks. On the other hand, the banks were scared of them. So then I asked this, and I knew nothing about microcredit or the self-help groups. Not much, I mean. Still, I thought that maybe 10 women, 10 such poor women come together. They, you know, uh, form a group, and they say, they vouch for each other, that if one doesn't repay, the others will repay for her. This was the basic principle on the basis of which I, I motivated them to form a group of 10. And I told them, okay, if the banks don't give you, I will give you 1,000 each. Because that's what they required. So I thought it was just 10,000 rupees, a matter of 10,000 rupees. And it's a good, you know, experience to have. And then I started with a group of 10. Eventually, before we could disperse the loan, one person, she, she, she scared, she got scared. She said, no, no, I don't want to get into this. So we had only nine women in the beginning. And then we started giving loans just 1,000 rupees to each one of them. So 9,000 rupees I pulled together. They repaid it well. Every day I used to go to them. Every day I used to take the installment from them. And it was a very nice experience for me and for, for them. We knew so much about each other. We asked personal questions. They asked me. Then I asked them. And then it was good to know each other. And that's how I started knowing their other needs like you know, insurance and later on these daycare centers so this initial dialogue with them uh, which helped me to understand their needs and for them it was good to know that something is something exists beyond the private money lender something exists uh, then after the first successful repayment of the loan they all of them asked me whether the loan is over i told them loan is over but you have saved 250 rupees And they were so shocked because 1250 is the whole sum that they had paid to me and the same amount they were paying always to the private money lender. But here they had saved something which they never saved with private money lender. So they were very happy, they were clapping and they said Taiz, that's how they call me. Medha Taiz money is uh, uh, magical. And I said my money is not magical, it's our money now. You have repaid. So now we all, 10 of us own this capital. And we have to decide what to do about it. And this was the beginning of Annapurna Parivar. And then they started bringing their friends and relatives to me. We started giving loans after loans. Then I had to leave my bank job. We registered as an organization much later. Then we started borrowing from banks. But something, you know, has not changed so far. The women have changed, but the banks still haven't changed. This is what I even today, after 25 years, I feel initially the banks never were interested to give loans to the poor women. Okay. Then I started Annapurna Parivar, many women came together under Annapurna Parivar, thousands and millions of them. And then Annapurna Parivar needed more and more money. I mean, our credit society under Annapurna Parivar, we needed more and more money to give to more and more women to give them higher loans once they successfully repaid the lower amounts of loans. And we see in the banking sector today in India, there are so many frauds, many big borrowers are absconding, they are turning defaulters, and we have 100% repayment ratio.
2: Do you see microcredit slash financial inclusion as an innovative, sustainable and global solution to address the challenges of poverty and how does this relate to the United Nations sustainable development Goals?
3: yes I very much think that micro finance micro insurance and all the services you know like financial inclusions which are listed under the financial inclusion services these are one of the global solutions to achieve sustainable developmental goals and when i look at the 17 sdgs developed by the un i think quite a few of them majority of them can be addressed through this financial inclusion program because these financial inclusion programs they aim towards ending poverty ending hunger achieving food security improved nutrition ensure healthy lives ensure inclusive and equitable quality education achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls this is the most important goal i feel because we still look at the women and girls as they are not the equals from a very few facts that they don't own any property in their name amongst the most illiterate population in the world that they are in the majority and when we Look at the financial inclusion goal through financial services like microcredit. we help the women expand their businesses, have assets in their name, but we also educate them financially, which is not a direct financial service, but which is an indirect financial service to educate them financially, how to save, how to use their bank accounts, how to, you know, invest their money how to borrow from safe places, how to keep their money safely, so on and so forth. So I think this is the, out of the SDG 17, the empowerment of women is very, very well addressed by the financial inclusion program. I think lastly, to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development. This is also, you know, aimed at through the financial inclusion program.
2: Could you tell me how your organization had to deal with all the media blitzes and other societal pressures that had negatively tainted
3: microfinance? It was in 2010 when the, the crisis called Andhra crisis broke in India. That was 2010. The microfinance industry by then had come of age it was existing in india for two decades then i would first list out the reasons for this crisis few reasons which i think are the most important firstly there was overcompetition amongst the mfis many mfis were operating in the same district giving many loans to the same family same borrower so i mean a very poor farmer could borrow three loans, four loans, if somebody is coming at his doorstep offering for loans. But when it comes to repayment, he can't repay four installments on a day or in a week. So he or she had to borrow, overborrow, borrow more to repay. Actually, the MFIs became like money lenders. So this was the main reason for the Andhra crisis, which was the biggest crisis in microfinance industry in India. But the root cause of this crisis was something else. The Reserve Bank of India was, and not even today, is governing the microfinance sector in a proper way, so that it issues proper licenses, not and controls the overcompetition. It uh, it has started preventing the overborrowing by you know creating credit bureaus like we have civil in banking industry. We have now credit bureaus in microfinance sector, which was introduced by the Reserve Bank of India after the Andhra crisis. That means after 2011. But initially when this crisis happened, this um, RBI had no control over it and RBI only had promoted NBFCs. As I said previously, the RBI had suggested this NBFC structure or the not-for-profit companies to, you know, do microfinance. And by the nature of it, the NBFCs, NBFCs are borrowing or taking investments from many sources and they have no rights to collect savings of the poor people to whom they are lending. So they are perpetually dependent upon bank borrowing or the investments. And this is a flawed structure which was the root cause of this crisis also. Eventually, after the crisis, RBI woke up. Then they set up a committee called Malegam Committee and they started governing a little more closely by way of introducing credit bureaus, by way of asking, forcing the MFIs to share their clients' data in the credit bureau. Each one should see before giving loans that they don't give more than two loans, so, so on and so forth. So they have tried to control this competition and over borrowing later on but as you have asked me how annapuruna handled this crisis we I am very proud to say that we were not competing with anyone we were never giving many loans to one borrower we, ne- we were never giving top-up loans we were never giving before the first loan was repaid by the borrower even though the borrower is a very nice old borrower very known person, still we followed all the good banking norms even before the andhra crisis after the andhra crisis our situation was difficult because many of the mfis who were debarred from functioning in andhra pradesh they came to maharashtra they came into our areas of operation they started poaching our groups they started competing with us so we we suffered during 2012 but we got ourselves introduced to all the norms introduced by RBI. We started following the credit bureau norms. We stopped giving any third if any borrower has two loans already even if she is our old borrower we told her you can't take a loan from Annapurna. In 2012 and 13, many borrowers fought with us. They said we are your old, old borrowers. How can you say no to us? Then we educated them. We have educated them a lot that other MFIs are not giving them information about top-up loans, giving them information that they have already two loans so they can't take another loan. But we started educating our clients after this Andhra crisis. And within 2012-13, we suffered a lot. We suffered a setback. But today, again, after five years, we are okay, fine. 36% of our borrowers are borrowing only from one source. That's only Annapurna many of them are sticking up to annapurna because annapurna is transparent they own it they get the profits they hold the shares but also they stick up to annapurna because annapurna gives the micro insurance services which no other mfi offers remaining of our borrowers only have one loan i mean almost 65 percent of our borrowers have only one loan apart from annapurna's loan So they are following all the norms. They are well-educated, well-informed microfinance clients. This is how we handle this crisis.
2: For social workers or social work students, what would be your thoughts to encourage more people to look at microcredit or financial inclusion as a form of social work practice?
3: I would like to tell my young friends who are studying social work or social entrepreneurship, i would uh, give them one friendly advice that they should not be scared of finance they should not be scared of numbers mathematics statistics it's very easy not because i have studied that but i think one can learn it very easily and we cannot solve the problems of human beings only by counseling them only by giving them advice but we have to Understand that becoming financially self sustainable is the need and is the basis of becoming any respectable human being. I think, along with the adv- good advice and counseling, we have to somewhere give them financial services and for from which we as social work practitioners shouldn't shy away. So, I will give this friendly advice to my young friends that they shouldn't shy away from credit and banking and you know statistics and data it's not that easy it's not rocket science and they if they look at their clients needs and if it the client requires this service they should be comfortable you know to give advice or to connect the clients to such services which will help the client to become self-sustainable.
2: Thank you so much Dr. Samant I really appreciate your time today.
1: Okay thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Maida Samant discuss microfinancing efforts in India on In Social Work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.